Good morning, everyone. And as we look ahead to 2021, here's a joke someone sent me at the end of last year. A man goes to the optician for his eye test. The optician asks him, what can he see? I see empty airports, empty football grounds, closed theatres and closed pubs. That's perfect, says the optician. You've got 2020 vision. Now, globally and nationally, it's been an awful 10 months, and I'm sure you'll all share my sentiments in saying good riddance to a horrible year. But now it's 2021, and we have hope. And though this most definitely isn't a sermon on coronavirus, I do want to say that despite the current situation being in many ways worse than it's ever been, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Now is a moment, yes, to keep up our guard, but also to lift our eyes. So I'm going to make no apology for the fact that this is going to seek to be an uplifting sermon, a new year message to kick off a new term and to give us new focus for the new challenges, but also the tremendous opportunities ahead. So let's pray. Father, we commit this time of reflecting on your word now as we think about the calling of the disciples as we think about conversations with your son jesus lord would you speak to us would you speak hope into our lives would you speak new purpose and would you speak joy and peace at this difficult time amen so on with the sermon and we pick up the story literally at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry introduced, as it were, by John the Baptist. In the verses immediately before today's passage, John has been the focus as he answered the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem to find out who he was. John had become headline news, baptising thousands in the River Jordan, including, of course, Jesus himself. And he had made it crystal clear where he sat in the pecking order with those famous words that you see in John just before our passage. A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. For Jesus, the son of God and creator of the universe, had come to save the world. And it's that saving work that explains the phrase, the lamb of God, that John uses at the beginning of our passage. For Jesus would be the new Passover lamb, the final sacrifice through whom mankind could receive forgiveness and eternal life in heaven. The exodus from Egypt and later the temple sacrifices had merely foreshadowed what Jesus would achieve when he died and rose again. Like John, they had merely pointed the way. But now they were no longer necessary for Jesus, the main act, the central figure of human history had arrived. Whether John the Baptist fully understood this or not, God had revealed to him what Jesus would go on to do. And he knew that the ministry that would ultimately achieve this was now ready to begin. But it needs a handover, not least of John's first two disciples or Jesus's first two disciples, Andrew and John, the author of the gospel himself, in fact. For that's who John the Baptist is with at the start of our passage. Two men he himself had been discipling and no doubt teaching all he understood about the mission of the Messiah. 
And that's why when they hear his exclamation, Lord, the Lamb, look, the Lamb of God, they respond not with confusion or even with questioning, but simply by following Jesus. And when that happens, well, now John the Baptist's job is done. All his preparatory work has paid off. The main act is now underway. And as they respond in faith to Jesus following him, in a sense, John and Andrew represent us. For like us, they were curious. They were hungry for God. And we wouldn't be here listening to this if we weren't as well. Like us, they had had some preparation in, the, in that they knew that John had told them about Jesus. And we too know something of the incredible claims about him that have been made. Some of us know quite a bit. Some of us know very little. We all know something, though. But also like us, there was so much that John and Andrew didn't understand, and that was fine. It was simply enough that they knew they were face to face with someone who really mattered, that they needed to spend time with, and that life would never be the same again. But what does Jesus do as they come towards him? He asks them a question, the first of three that I actually want to ask us this morning, and to the first of which I'll return to at the end. And it's this that we see in verse 38, for turning round, Jesus saw them following him and asked, what do you want? What do you want? Now, we might be tempted to assume that that question, that phrase means very little, just a sort of polite, can I help you? From a man surprised at the unexpected attention he's just received from these two people. But I don't think so. No more than we should see his words in verse 39 as a literal response to the question they ask him. For their chosen form of address, Rabbi, makes clear the role that they see him playing, that of a teacher, presumably, to them. Where are you staying makes their intentions clearer still. And Jesus is most definitely playing ball. So come and you will see his answer is not an invitation to see where he's staying and then get on their way. It's an invitation to come in, to build a relationship. So they spent the day with him, the implication being that many more would follow. And that's clear from what Andrew does next. A response that's such a good example to us all. Verse 41 tells us that the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. For Andrew understood that deep down we're all looking for something. And that if we're to be truly satisfied, that something has to be God. His brother Peter was no exception. A, a God-shaped hole is a reality for everyone, whether we fully recognise it or not. Andrew knew that Peter had that need and it seems he at least did recognise it a bit. Enough, it seems, to respond. But so too some do many of our family, friends and acquaintances. They too know there's a hole. Many of them will know that God can do something to fill it. And for us too, just like Andrew, God can lead us to a natural way in which we can bring them to him. We just need to ask and we just need to trust him. But that's not my main 
focus here. Instead, it's on Jesus's question. What do you want? A question he is asking all of us today, whether we're already committed Christians or not. For it's not just a question as we consider our general religious allegiance. It's a question, too, as we consider our aspirations and our expectations every month of every year, including right now. Indeed, not least of all right now at this difficult and let's be honest, depressing and discouraging time. And it's a question that asks us, where does your hope lie? What are you dreaming of? What are you yearning for? And what are you praying for as you begin each new day? But here's the reality for many of us, I fear, left to our own devices, and certainly it is for myself. We find ourselves desperately wishing for an end to these dreadful restrictions. Of course we do. For seeing family and friends, for school for our children and grandchildren, for a return to swimming pools and theatres and football grounds and restaurants and pubs and of course to church. In short, to life as it used to be. Oh, and to sunshine too, and warmer climes and to holidays and beaches, though in the meantime a good dump of snow wouldn't go amiss. Well, that might just be me, but you get the idea. And yet here's what is missing. Where's God in all this? Where is growth in our relationship with him? Where's mission? Where's worship? Where's holiness? Where's prayer? Where's feeding on the scriptures? Where's showing the love of Jesus with someone who desperately needs it now? You see, the problem is for many of us, much of the time, that we've stopped seeing lockdown through God's eyes, through authentically Christian eyes. And in doing so, we've missed such a big, big reason for hope, for purpose, for encouragement in our circumstances right here, right now. We've allowed where we are nationally and if you like, um, epidemiologically, if you know what I mean, to smother where we are spiritually and evangelistically. And we're feeling sorry for ourselves and allowing that to drown out a passion and a compassion for the lonely and the lost. It's such an easy thing to do and it happened to me and I'm only grateful, to be honest, for the opportunity to preach to shake me out of it. And in your life, do you too need that repenting and that resetting? Don't fight it. It's good news for you and it's good news for others. For what they need is a you that points them upwards too, not simply a fellow sufferer in the pain. For in response to Jesus's question, what do you want? You do now know the answer. And it's a coming back to the calling you've been given and to the commission that you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, have received. So that's our first question, and we'll come back to that as we begin our response at the end. And you'll be pleased to know we're well over halfway through this talk. But now our second and much briefer point, and this is one especially for those who are exploring faith and the teaching of Jesus at this time. Will you follow? And we see this in the instruction Jesus gives Philip when they meet in verse 43. The next day, the passage tells us Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow 
me. Words that I think we can take as a summary of a, of a more compelling and comprehensive appeal. He must have said more. And um, to a person too, who at least knows a little bit more about the coming Messiah and about Jesus than this understandably brief gospel account reveals. For Philip understands enough about what Jesus is claiming alongside his invitation that he can rush straight to his friend Nathaniel and say, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, is that because Andrew and Peter, who also came from the town of Bethsaida, have already told him about it, Jesus? I don't know. It could be perhaps, too, that he's been prepared by John the Baptist. Again, we don't know. But what follows is, I have to say, an unexpectedly amusing reply to what is actually an astonishing declaration that Philip makes to his God-fearing but somewhat humorous or cynical mate, Nathaniel. Nazareth? Can anyone, anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked him, which suggests that Nazareth was not the uh, religious desres, uh, which we with our Christian heritage might have assumed it to be. Now, I don't want to offend anyone uh, by drawing any local parallels, but it seems if there was a first century Palestine equivalent of a little uh, popular paperback stocking filler book that uh, was on sale um, a few years ago um, about the 50th, the 50 worst towns in Great Britain. Well, if there was an equivalent of that book, Nazareth would be near the top. Now, I don't own a copy of that book, although I have looked at it in the bookshop. And um, I can tell you that Camberley isn't in the top 50. You'll be pleased to know. But keep it to yourself. But Ascot is 21st and Basingstoke is 9th, which is worth bearing in mind next time you're lusting after a local John Lewis. And Philip's reply uses words that should already be familiar, suggesting that Andrew could indeed have tipped him off. Come and see, he responds, the very words Jesus himself had used to Angie and John. Following him is ultimately the only appropriate response to the appeal that Jesus makes. In the end, it's not enough to just be intellectually impressed or to like him or admire him. He seeks followers, not fans. And so as we begin this sermon series, Conversations with Jesus, will you join us this term to get to know Jesus better? Stick with this series. Learn from these 16 conversations that Jesus had with people who on the whole knew very little about him and may have been very far from looking like the sort of people that disciples of Jesus should have been. Yet he did not ignore them or even condemn them and he won't ignore or condemn us. He loved them and he engaged with them. He answered their questions and he asked them questions of his own that stretched them further and helped them learn and think. And ultimately, he gave them what they truly yearned for, a life inspired, empowered, and ultimately transformed by him for the best. Will you follow him? Or will you at least today allow this to be the continuation of a journey to find out more about Jesus, the saviour of the world. And that leads me on to my third 
and final question this morning. Will you become, will you become the person you were made to be? The question that Jesus's words to Nathaniel and Peter so strikingly imply. And in the way he deals with these two soon to be disciples, we see the continuation of the theme that runs throughout this passage, the theme of seeing, both literally in terms of Jesus's residence and Nathaniel's fig tree, but also metaphorically in terms of spiritual and prophetic sight. For here in this passage, we see the first example in John's gospel of a characteristic of Jesus that will blow people's minds away time and time again. His ability to see both into the future, but also into people's hearts, just as he can into ours. We see it into the future with Peter, and I want this to be a huge encouragement to us when we feel like a failure, when we let ourselves or others or God down, as we so often do. For Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is a Greek word meaning rock, to which the English name Peter corresponds. Yet when we go on to read the gospel accounts, we find that actually Peter is anything but a rock. He's hot headed. He's impulsive. He's unstable. If there's someone who puts their foot in it nine times out of ten, it's Peter. And yet ultimately, Peter will be transformed. We will look at him again in the final sermon of the sermon series. And we see there Peter will be restored by Jesus, the precursor to his glorious achievements as the first leader of the early church. The lesson is clear. If Peter can do it, so too can we. So Jesus sees the future with Peter. With Nathaniel, he sees into his heart. The passage recounts what happened like this. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. What do we learn from this? Well, we can't be sure when or whether Jesus had literally already seen Jesus, uh, Nathaniel, under the fig tree. But what clearly astonishes Nathaniel is not so much that, I don't think. It's Jesus's description of him as an Israelite without deceit. And if Peter represents all our failures and God forgiving us and using us anyway, Nathaniel represents God seeing all that is good in us and knowing our true yearning to live honestly and wholeheartedly for him. And I want us to take both of those and hold them together in my final question. Will we become? Will we become in reality and persistently all that our heart longs for us to be? Will we step into the destiny that God has for us, even if it seems from this vantage point beyond us and beyond our ability to achieve? Because actually our ability isn't what matters. It's God's. That's why in the end, Peter could do it. A calling that ultimately took him too to the cross. God will give us the strength. God will work the circumstances miraculously 
if necessary, just as he did for Peter, so that his will is done in our lives. Now, I don't know what God is calling you to in your life. Perhaps you don't either. Not many of us know everything that we're called to for the rest of our time here on earth, though I do hope God will at times give you an inkling that will help you on your way. But whether we know or not, what we can know is that he is faithful. He is all powerful. He is all knowing and he loves every one of us, whatever weaknesses or failings we may have. They trust him, seek him, and in doing so, seek to fulfill the glorious calling that he has put on your life. We need to finish. Let me return to the question with which I began. What do you want? In this new year and hopefully a better year, what do you want from it? To grow your faith? To grow the kingdom? Or to simply batten down the hatches, close your eyes and wait until the virus goes away? Now, please be assured, God knows it's difficult. He totally understands our fears, our suffering, maybe some wasted months as we've withdrawn into ourselves in this difficult time. He understands the challenges. He knows the limits of what we can do. And yet what he does expect of us is that we seek to make his aspirations our aspirations and to trust that he knows what we are capable of better than we know ourselves. So what I want us to do now is just for a moment reflect on this. Reflect on this challenge or this series of challenges and what it means for you. I'm going to leave a little bit of silence for us to do that before I pray for us all. So let's begin that time of reflection now. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you know the challenges and also the opportunities that we face. Father, thank you that you know our failures, our weaknesses, our fears. And yet you forgive us and love us. Thank you that you promise that your will will be done if we trust you and rely on your strength to supplement our own. So Lord, we give you our potential. We ask that you might align our hopes, our aspirations, our prayers with your heart for us. And that over the next few months, as things get easier for us as a country, 
that we would grow spiritually so that we become those who point people not just to easier times medically in terms of our freedom but point them to the possibility of being made right with you and seeing all of our deepest longings all of our deepest desires and all of our deepest needs being fulfilled through your son Jesus Christ who died for us and rose again thank you father amen